Well, good morning, everyone. Happy Thanksgiving. Yeah, I love that response, Ryan. Oh, yeah, that's the right thing. Yeah. I'm so glad that you're here today. If you're just joining with us, if this is your first Sunday with us, we're in the midst of a series looking at the art of belonging, just seeking to understand how we can find and create and sustain belonging in our lives, because we all want to be in spaces where we are known and loved and cared for. And so over the last few weeks, we've been looking at these different aspects of belonging that have really built on one another. We looked at how we're called to belong to God. We looked at how we're called to belong to this common purpose. We looked at how we're called to belong to a people together. And then last week, we looked at how we are called to belong practically and what to do that and how to do that. And today, I want to add in really one last piece to all this idea around belonging, that belonging isn't just about belonging to God or to a purpose or to people or practically. It's also about belonging to a place that we are called to belong to the land that we are a part of, that we're called to belong to this space that we are rooted in here in Niagara, that belonging means belonging to the land that we are living on. The problem is, is that in the modern Western world, we live incredibly disconnected from the land that we're a part of, which means we don't think twice about buying tomatoes in January. It never occurs to us that this is kind of odd. Right? We never think that a Monday, you know, tomorrow is different than any other Monday. We don't live in actual these habits of reciprocity with the seasons. And we often live very disconnected from understanding the plants, the animals, the watershed that we are a part of. But belonging to the land is actually a biblical theme that runs throughout the Bible. It begins in Genesis. It's certainly a part of Leviticus, as we're going to learn today. We're going to hear preaching on Leviticus. And then it moves all the way through to Jesus and Matthew 5 to Revelation that belonging to the land is a theme that matters for each and every one of us if you're a follower of Jesus. And so today, we want to talk about how we are called to live in harmony, or as the Bible talks about shalom, with all of creation, and how really Leviticus is a grounding text about the importance of living rightly with the land. And so today, to talk about belonging to the land that we are a part of, we want to enter into this topic by actually having a guest speaker come and share and lead us in this discussion and in this discernment and in this collective reflection here together. Because the land that we are a part of is the land of the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe peoples. And this territory that we're a part of is covered by the Upper Canada Treaties, and it's within the land protected with the Dish with One Spoon Wampum Agreement. You don't know what that agreement entails. This agreement entails that we would covenant to only take what is needed, to leave enough for everyone else, and to keep the dish clean, meaning to live with responsibility and sustainability towards one another and the generations to follow. So since we live on the land of the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe peoples, we need to listen to the lives of those who have been caring and stewarding this land for generations and generations and generations. So today we have Patty Crowick to be able to come and to speak to us on this idea of belonging with the land, really sharing specifically from Leviticus. Patty is an Anishinaabe and Ukrainian writer belonging to Lak Soul First Nation. She's the co-host of the Medicine for Resistance podcast and a co-founder of a foundation which collects funds and disperses them to indigenous peoples and organizations. Her work has actually been published in lots of different places. Her work's been published to Sojourners, Canadian Living. She is active uh, with the Fort Erie Native Friendship Center and the Strong Water Singers. She's a Christian leader who's worked with many different churches and organizations, and she lives right here in Niagara Falls. I had a close friend share with me that I really needed to get to know Patty and then recommended Patty's book to me, which is the right way to influence me in any way, right? It's through books. You all know me, right? And so I read her book, Becoming Kin, and it's wonderful. 
And in her book, she writes this. And she writes this about really belonging to the land and what actually spurred me to invite her to speak here today. She says this, that I want us to consider our relationship with the land, to think about it beyond squabbling over ownership and rights, and to think about responsibilities and reciprocal relationships, to think about ourselves as part of creation rather than apart from it. We need to remember that the land belongs to itself and that everyone belongs to the creator. Land is our first relationship, and it's the first relationship that we need to restore. We are used to standing on it, planting in it, and marveling at it, but our relationship with it is complicated and colonial. We buy and sell it, extract resources from much of it, and then idealize parts of it. Our connection to the land is in our relationship with it, not our ownership of it. When I read that, I thought that she would be the right person to lead us in this discussion of belonging to the land and how we might continue to live rightly with the land that is around us and that we are a part of. So with that, I want to invite Patty to the stage to be able to speak with us today. Can we just give her a huge round of applause for being willing to come and to share with us here uh, this morning? As I said in the first service, and I always say, whenever we have a guest speaker here, you all actually have one job, okay? Your job is to smile, okay? That's your job. Because sometimes it can be a little bit intimidating being up here and sharing with all of these people. But today, I'm really glad to be able to have Patty share with us from Leviticus about belonging to the land. Thank, Thank you, Patty. And it's okay, because i got to take my glasses off to see my stuff, which means I can't see any of you anyway. Plus, the lights are really bright. <laughs> I was talking with uh, Laura between services, because I really love the progression of songs that she chose. That we have everything that we need. That all creation sings. These are profoundly... Nishinaabe ideas. I can connect to these on a really deep level. And um, now we will enter the crushing and pressing of Leviticus. Anin Bujo, Wabna Nanangonque, and Dijnaka's Adicdotum, Obishko Kang and Dunjaba, Niagara and Dunjaba, Ojibwe, Anishinaabe Quayendao, Miguetch Mishomis, Miguetch Nokomis, Gibi Wasaj, and Nongwa Miguetch, Nakinongwa Miguetch, Shkakamakwe. Ogimijang Medizuan, Ogimijang Nabish, Ogimijang Wasiniag, Banashiag, Kamujik, Minwanabishing Ayagig, Miguetch, Wabnang, Jawanang, Ipingishmak, Minwakwednang, Miguetch, Gajay Manadu. It's always important for me to speak the language, and I'm not a language speaker. Um, my son and his partner are language speakers. They can hold their own in a conversation, and they're actually raising my grandson um, so that Nishnabe Moan is his first language. Um, but I like to speak the language by way of introduction and by way of a prayer of gratitude in the church because for too long the church only learned our languages or heard our languages with the intention of bringing good news from across oceans to us. They did not learn our language or learn our stories with the intention of finding out what good news we might have for them. And as I read Leviticus, is a deeply familiar book. Not just because I was raised in the evangelical church where it's often presented as like this kind of really heavy, really heavy book. And it is, it is. It's the heart of Torah. It's right in the middle of this story of creation, exodus and settlement. And it's setting up how we are to live in the land. This land this Anishinaabe Haudenosaunee land. I am the daughter of Roy Wesley. He was a Anishinaabe 
man from Laxul First Nation. And when I say that we belong to Laxul Nation, we belong there in a very legal sense. My son calls it our race card, where actually, you know, we have Indian status, which is a legal category in Canada. And we belong to Laxul First Nation. That's where we're registered as Indians. Which means I can live on Laxul if I want to be able to access banned housing, such as it is, but I can't do that in Cat Lake. I can't do that at Curve Lake, which would be very close to my grandson. I can't do that anywhere except the place the government has me registered. And it is through Roy that I am connected to the Anishinaabe people of this place who have existed here for long enough that our word for north actually contains the idea of glaciers going home. Giwedin contains the idea of going home. And with the elders, the etymology is fascinating and all words have history. But when the elders talk about the history of the word Giwedin, it's talking about glaciers going home. That was a long time ago. That's history contained in the Anishinaabe language and through Roy I am connected to this place and that history through Vicky, my mother, I'm connected to the refugees and migrants. M her family, so my maternal grandparents, fled first from Stalin's Russia and then from post-war Germany, finding safety here on the land of the Mississauga, Mississauga Anishinaabeg, not finding home with the Miss Mississauga Anishinaabeg, but finding home at the expense of their displacement. And I was raised apart from my Ojibwe family. So this journey of unpacking colonial thinking that I invite people into is one that I undertake myself. I was raised by my maternal family. I was raised thousands of miles from my paternal family. I didn't even know them growing up. This was, of course, I'm old, so this, I grew up before Facebook, before you could kind of look people up on stuff and find them. Um, you know, so my first two decades were spent knowing I was indigenous, having other people tell me, you know, looking at the brown kid and the white family and expecting me to be able to perform indigeneity for them, to be able to speak Indian or to be able to talk to animals or something. I don't know, like it was... <laughs> people would ask me, like, what part Indian are you when I was a kid? And I would say stuff like, my head and my heart, because I was an idiot, I was a kid. Um, but we're not partial people, of course, we're, we're whole people. And so this journey that I invite you on, as we examine history, and as a social worker, that's what I'm trained to do, right? I'm trained to examine history, to look for patterns. Did the thing happen? Is there a pattern of that thing happening in this family? How far back does that pattern go? Where else does that pattern play out in other systems? And then I write a service plan. And I realized about a month ago that this was what I had done with becoming kin. I had done like a history review of Canada and the United States. And then at the um, encouragement of my editor, a, a white woman named Valerie, extraordinary editor, I had a great, have a great relationship with her. She says, white people like to be told what to do. So tell us what to do. I said, okay. So, <laughs> so the end of every chapter has a task. So it, the book is a history review followed by a service plan. Um, and I had this epiphany about a month ago, and my friend Neil, I saw him when I was in Austin, Texas a few weeks ago. Um, I'm sharing this epiphany with him, and he says, Patty, I saw that when I read the early issue, of the early copy of the book. And I was like, thanks for catching up, Patty. I was like, okay. <laughs> so Aurora Levins Morales writes that ultimately what we inherit are our relationships and our beliefs about them. 
So from my father, Roy, from my mother, Vicki, I inherit relationships to this place and to the people who live on it. And I have beliefs about those relationships. And we can't alter the actions of our ancestor. We do that history review, and sometimes history reviews are a real bummer, right? They, un they uncover lots of things that we don't want to talk about, that we don't want to think about. We don't want to think about how this land, covered by the Dish With One Spoon Treaty, that we acknowledge, you know, was, belonged to other people. We don't want to think about how it no longer belongs to them and why they're pushed aside. Why, why Six Nations of the Grand River doesn't have the six miles on each side of the river that they were promised. Logan Stats actually has a really banging song called Six Miles Each Side of the River. Um, you know, so we don't want to think about that. But we have to think about that. The book of Leviticus calls us to think about that. It demands that we think about these histories, that we think about how we enter the land and how we live in relationship with the land. And so Aurora says that we can't alter those actions, but we can decide to do, we can decide what we do with the social relations that they left us. So if we benefited from displacement, instead of pretending it didn't happen, we can join with indigenous people to work against further displacement. If we benefited from the transatlantic slave trade, and basically all Canadian corporations benefited significantly from that, even though we eradicated slavery in Canada before Canada was a thing, um, we still benefited from enslaved labor, from unfree labor. So we can then work against that now. So these histories that I'm asking you to excavate and think about are deeply uncomfortable, but they offer us a path forward. They offer us a way of belonging because you can't be in relationship with somebody if you're pretending you didn't cause harm or that you didn't benefit from harm or that you weren't silent in the face of harm. When I say that the land is my ancestor, that is a scientific statement. That's something that Dr. Kiolo Fox said one day. And what he means by that, he's a geneticist and, an, and a bioethicist, and what he means by that is that the land shapes our genome over the course of millennia in very real ways. So when indigenous people talk about our mother, the earth, about saving the mauna in Hawaii from another telescope, about what Suwetan and Standing Rock and Burnt Church and Elsie Bok talk, and all of those other places, where consultation seems to mean we've asked you a question and now we're going to do what we want anyway. Um, we're talking about a relative. We're talking about a being that shaped our genome. The song says, all creation sings, and I love that. Land-based people who are blessed to live on the land that knew their ancestors understand land to be alive. When I said this to my mom, she's a gardener, not indigenous, German-Ukrainian, came, you know, refugee, remember? That woman can pull food from any plot of land you give her. She has extraordinary relationship to land. So it's not something that's unique to Native people. If you live in relationship with the land, you develop that relationship. You develop that ability. When I told her that the land was alive and had feelings, she says, of course it does. I talk to it. It talked back to me. My friends say I'm crazy, but I know it's talking to me. So she gets it. She understands it. And when I read the book, The Hebrew Bible and Environmental Ethics by Mary Jorstead, she talks about the text as being alive with sentient spiritual beings. She maintains that throughout the Hebrew text, the writers attribute agency to non-animal nature, that it feels 
and responds physically to that emotion. Just like a Hebrew mourner would cover their head in dust, so too does the land cover itself in dust and grief. It has its own relationship to the Creator that has nothing to do with ours. And although we see in these texts that we can interfere with that relationship, and our interference has consequences. So in our first, our first couple of verses from Leviticus, the writer says that you must not do any of the things I hate. It does not matter if you're Israelites or outsiders. All of the things that were done by the people who lived in the land before you, the land became unclean. And if you make the land unclean, it will throw you out. It will get rid of you, just as it got rid of the nations that were there before you. Now, as an Ojibwe person, that's familiar to me. Because we also have stories of previous worlds that ended as a result of bad behavior, of oppressive behavior. And so we who live on this land had found a way to live with it. Christians often think of themselves as ancient Israel, beset on all sides, determined to do what is right despite being surrounded by the forces of darkness. But these lands are not your promised land. They were not given to you by God, despite what King James, that King James, wrote in the 1620 Charter of New England. He wrote, Almighty God sent a plague among the savages. The governor of Massachusetts Bay Colony, 14 years later, would build on this saying, we swept away the natives and cleared Christian title to this place. Later theologians and political leaders would add variations on this theme, claiming the land in God's name and framing my ancestors as the Canaanites whose sinful behavior needed to be rooted out. I heard a sermon one time about Israelites being marched into captivity, and the pastor asked us if we could imagine. Just imagine, he says. Imagine being forced to leave your home by an invading army. Imagine having to walk into captivity knowing that you may never see home again. Can you imagine that? And he's just like completely gobsmacked at what this entailed. And I sat there thinking, yeah, actually I can. I can imagine that. I can imagine multiple trails of tears. Where from the Potawatomi in the north to the Cherokee and Choctaw and Seminole in the south, thousands upon thousands of indigenous people were forced to march from the East Coast across the Appalachia Mountains into Oklahoma, which was then designated Indian country, but then later on parceled off and sold. So yes, I could imagine being forced to leave home and walking hundreds of miles, not knowing if I would ever see home again. I can imagine the transatlantic slave trade. Africans taken up from their indigenous, indigenous people in their own right taken up from that place, marched for hundreds of miles across the continent, and then put on ships across the Atlantic Ocean. So yes, I can imagine what that would have been like. I can imagine John A. Macdonald and Duncan Campbell Scott denying food and medicine to indigenous people on the Canadian plains to force them onto reservations so that people like my husband's great-grandparents could get free farmland. So it is indigenous people and not Christians who share that common ground with ancient Israel, who share common ground with those who are made unsafe by oppression and silence, who are made to be invisible, made silent, who feel in their bodies that they are unsafe. 
Like the ancient Israelites, we too had laws about caring for the alien among us. Because Leviticus also has injunctions to care for the alien among you, care for the newcomer. And we too had those laws, that we were to care for people. That's what it means to live in relationship with the land, to belong to the land, to understand that we all share it together. And as Daniel Heath Justice says, it was the problem was never the generosity of our ancestors. People often make jokes. There's memes about how Native people should have had better homeland security. Um, but Daniel says the problem was never the generosity of our ancestors, those who made agreements with the newcomers or the latecomers, depending on your point of view. We've been here for a long time. What took you guys so long? We made agreements, as you heard, the dish with one spoon, the two row wampum agreement. There's a lot of agreements that we made on how to share the land, how to live in layered relationship. But of course, we know that that's not, hap that that's not what happened. We made agreements to live without interfering with each other's life. But we know that that's not what happened. We have a culture of living with the land rather than on it, of belonging to the land. And rather than the newcomers adapting to our way of life, as Leviticus says, newcomers are supposed to do. Newcomers were supposed to enter into a way of living among the ancient Israelites, of living with the land. Instead of doing that, they imposed other practices, behaving like those described in these chapters of Leviticus. People who, in broad strokes, are abusive and greedy, using violence to disregard consent and impose relations of power instead of living in relations of care. We're talking now about places of belonging. And when I was at a conference in Austin, Texas recently, Erna Kin Hackett started by saying, when did your body know you were unsafe in a place? Because our bodies know long before, long before our head catches up. And then she said, asked, and how long was it before you left? I knew, I could tell her the moment, maybe not the day, but I knew the exact moment. I knew what was happening the day that I felt unsafe. And it was years before I left. Like our own Anishinaabe laws, Leviticus is full of warnings about mistreatment of people and animals being connected to mistreatment of land resulting in the land acting in self-defense. The text goes on to say that the land must not be sold permanently because the land is God's. We rely, we live with the land, but the land is not ours to buy and sell. And this is also familiar to me because my son often says that the land doesn't belong to anyone, it belongs to itself. The Anishinaabe creation story follows a very similar trajectory to that of Genesis, you know, we've got layers of creation, you know, the thinking, the, the stars, the sun, the moon, the plants, the, you know, sorry, the planets, the land, the water, the plants, the animals, and finally the people, each layer of creation being complete in itself. And then promising to care for the layer that comes next. But the lesson that the Anishinaabe take from it is much different than the one that I grew up with growing up in the evangelical church because what I grew up with was we are made in God's image, we have dominion over the earth, we are made in God's image, we are, we are the kings of the world. Quote, Titanic. Um, but for the Anishinaabe, the lesson that we take from it is that we are the least, look how much we need. We need sun and moon and stars to guide us at night. We need land to stand on and water to drink. We need plants and animals. We need so much. It's a profound lesson in humility 
to remember that we belong to the land, that the land promised to take care of us, and that we owe it a reciprocity of care. Mary Jorstead, in her book, argues that the land and all that comes from it has its own relationship with the creator that has nothing to do with us. She says that the book of Job, in some ways, is God showing to Job that all of creation has its own relationship to me that has nothing to do with you. It's not always about you, Job. Leviathan and the mountains and the oceans, like, where were you? I did that. And they have a relationship with me. And so then, our last text from Leviticus, so sorry. The one verse tells us that we must allow the land to rest. The land is to have a Sabbath. Sabbath was really important to God, right? It was part of the institution of the first of creation that we were to have Sabbath. We are to rest. We are to rest. But in Leviticus, he tells us the land is also to be allowed to rest. There are consequences to not letting the land rest. And we know this because farmers will let fields lie fallow. People who work in conservation will block off parts of parks or sand dunes to allow the land to rest. But we don't allow the land to rest. We pave it and put concrete on it. And as a result, cities like Brooklyn last week are underwater because there's nowhere for the water to go. There is a price to not allowing the land to rest, to living on it rather than with it. And the price, your land will be laid waste, your cities will lie in ruins, and the land will enjoy its Sabbath years, all the time that it lies desolate. All the time that you are in the country of your enemies, it will rest and enjoy its Sabbath. It will have the rest it did not have during the Sabbaths you lived on it. The land will kick us out. It has its own relationship to the creator that has to be respected. And climate change is real. Whatever you want to attribute it to, we know things are getting hotter and wetter and droughts are happening. We cover the land with pavement and concrete, which means there's nowhere for the water to go. The Dust Bowl of the 30s was man-made. It was the result of irresponsible farming practices. It was the result of ripping out deep-rooted prairie grasses and replacing them with thirsty crops like wheat and cotton, just like the indigenous people were ripped out and replaced. Climate change catastrophes continue to worsen while politicians prioritize development and growth, refusing access to the climate refugees that their policies create. They live on top of the land, extracting from the land, living in relations of power and domination instead of living in relationship with reciprocity and giving the land the Sabbath that we are commanded to do. But while the land withdraws in grief, and we risk being cast out so that it can protect itself, there is also joy. My friend Tate Walker, a Lakota poet, writes, speaking with the land is a puzzle. Colonialism scattered across generations. I want the land back, yes. But even more, I want the land to want me back. Each our other's missing piece, our jigsaw edges fitting together in a long-awaited embrace. Isaiah describes a very similar picture of the land wanting us back. After the people in their exile have taken the time to return to themselves, 
to think about what they had done. In Anishinaabe Moan, we have the concept of Biskabiyang, return to yourself, which carries the idea of going into the woods. Kids these days will tell you to touch grass, but they get it. You gotta go outside, you gotta return to yourself. So Isaiah has that very similar picture. The desert and the dry ground will be glad. The people have returned to themselves and they're coming back. Coming back to live in right relationship with the land and with the original people. It will be very glad and shout for joy. Isaiah says, I will make their dry and empty land like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be there. He writes, the hills and the mountains will burst into song as you go. All the trees in the field will clap their hands. The land feels grief and anger, but it also feels joy and holds memory of us. Yes, it was complete in itself at the time of creation, but after we arrived, it entered into relationship with us, and it wants us back too. But it wants us to belong to each other, not in relations of power and hierarchy. The Anishinaabe have a prophecy of the seventh fi of, of eight fires, and many believe that we're in the time of the seventh fire. And I always thought that these were just metaphors, um, because I guess that's how we're taught to think of, the, uh, of these images. But my son is a forest firefighter, and the world is literally on fire. Um, and so when he, when he talks about his experiences fighting forest fires, he, sa he says that like, our land needs fire. A healthy landscape thrives after a fire. He did a controlled burn in our backyard, and we now have like massive amounts of wild strawberries. There are types of pine that need the intense heat of fire to open the pine cones so that the trees can grow. After a healthy landscape has had fire, blueberries and fireweed will come. Fireweed is a beautiful flower. It also like very, makes a great tea, lots of medicinal properties. Blueberries, I don't even need to tell you how good those are. So a healthy landscape, when the seventh fire comes, when a wildfire comes, Beautiful, full of life, that green, lush place for us to walk. But he has also talked about the moonscape of a clear cut, where no one was living in relation to the land, where they were just extracting from the land, taking everything they could and then leaving kindling behind. And when the fire comes through a clear cut, he says, he calls it a moonscape. The heat is so intense that everything dies. The top layer of soil dies. We only have like a thin layer of topsoil on this planet. We don't have a lot of it, but it dies. And it takes decades for growth to happen again. Life is inevitable. The growth will return. But how we prepare for these fires, and according to the Anishinaabeg prophecy, that's on you. <laughs> Sorry, newcomers. <laughs> that's on you. And I think possibly because there's just so many of you. And you control all of our systems. And so the decisions that you make have consequences about how we live in this world. So what is our responsibility to the land, to the community of sentient spiritual beings and the relationships we've inherited from us? While the praise teams come forward, I want us to think about taking the time we need to reflect and return to ourselves, to reflect on how you have entered this land, to reflect on the relationships that you have inherited, to reflect on the warnings of Leviticus and the prophecy of the fires and the ways that we have used this text to cause harm and oppress others instead of hearing it speak directly to us, to think about that 
new wine that comes after the crushing. Because while the land feels grief and anger and is beginning to cast us out, it also feels joy and holds memory of us. I want the land back, yes. But even more, I want the land to want me back, to become a part of a community where people know they are welcome as their authentic selves, not made invisible, not made silent. I heard this song um, at a conference in Austin, and it, speaker after speaker talked in the, at this conference about how this was the first time they had been back to church in one year, two years, five years, because they had felt unsafe, and they left. And they did not feel unsafe in this conference. They felt welcomed and celebrated. And they sang this song, and this is now my favorite song. I love this so much. I will testify to love from the river to the sea. From the river to the sea, for as long as I shall live, I will testify to love. I will be a witness in the silences when words are not enough. Um, please stand. Sing, dance. It's a great song. <laughs> Can we give a huge round of applause, thanking Patty for being able to share with us today. I really want to invite you to actually reflect on what she has shared this week and how we might live not on the land, but with the land, belonging to it, being good neighbors with the land and all those who are around us. I want to thank you, Patty, for challenging us today from Leviticus, and might we actually respond rightly by following the call of God in our lives with that. Today, uh, to close and to send you out with, we thought it would be appropriate both for Thanksgiving and especially with the message that Patty was bringing to us today to actually have a reminder of the good of the land. So as you came in, you might have noticed that there are apples out in the foyer. It has been the most delicious that our foyer has ever smelled. Okay, those are all local from Niagara. We want to invite you to take one just as a reminder that as we care for the land, there is joy in that, and we can find that together by living rightly with the land. And so to close this uh, morning, I want to read to you a short benediction, just the verses that Patty reminded us of at the end, and they are from Isaiah, where we read this. You can be sure that I will comfort Zion's people. I will look with loving concern on all their destroyed buildings. I will make their deserts like Eden. I will make their dry and empty land and like the garden of the Lord, joy and gladness will be there. People will sing and give thanks to me. My people, you will go out of Babylon with joy. You will be let out in peace. The mountains and the hills will burst into song as you go, and all the trees in the field will clap their hands. Anyone want to say amen to that? Might we live in right relationship with the land and follow that? As always, if you have any need whatsoever, there are people in our prayer room off to my left. You can go to the give wall if you want to give. If you're brand new, you can go to the blue, uh, blue people, the people with blue shirts to say hi. Uh, Evans AG, it's not Evans, it's our churches, but Evans AGM report is there as well. Grab apples, and as always, grace and peace. We'll see you all next week as we wrap up this entire series here together. Bye-bye.